Hello again, my friends, and welcome to Jorgensen Soundbox. This shows a series of conversations where I try to just learn something from all my smart friends. Today, my guests are Will Oliver and Will Barnes. They're co-founders of InPractice, a company that conducts interviews with executives and sells them to investors looking at the companies and building conviction in their portfolio. Uh, they have each individually done thousands of one-to-one interviews in pursuit of finding some of the best investment opportunities on the planet. And we talk about how they saw the opportunity to start this business in a very mature industry uh, of, of expert networks. We talk about how they structured a business to align authentically with them and how they wanted to spend their time over the whole course of their lives. And we talk about tactics for conducting successful interviews. If you enjoy conversations like this and want to be a part of a community who talks about and learns about stuff like this all the time, please go to ejorgensen.com, subscribe to my newsletter, but please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. So I'm psyched to jump into this with you guys. I think you have one of the most interesting kind of sets of backgrounds and business and perspective of all the people I've met. Uh, We met through a really um, I don't know, high signal channel, I guess, in my life, which is like Blas and Lattice work and the whole kind of like Charlie Munger mafia slash fanboy club. Um, and, uh, so I, I have learned a ton from you guys already and love your business. And I'm really excited to kind of dig more into all of it. Uh, I want to start with my, what is becoming my favorite opening question for each of the wills that we have here, Will Barnes and Will Oliver. Um, which is who are your heroes? Wow, big question. Alphabetic. We should proceed alphabetically. So, uh, Will Barnes, but who are your who are your heroes? It's it, it's a weird one because I, I think in a way, my old man, well, my father, probably is one in a way, right? But then I also found you know manga buffett that whole way of living and 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 i guess building a business and that and, and living a life because of my old man you know, not because he you know, i don't my, my old man doesn't really know manga he probably wouldn't even know who manga is right if i asked him i mean probably now he would through, through me but previously he wouldn't and and he kind of lived his life in a way that yeah, it was nowhere near what 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 kind of Buffett and, and Munger were were kind of preaching in a way. So, it, so in in a weird way, I had two two heroes in different ways. One with the Vatitu character, you know, morals and 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 maybe the you know life, and then also how I wanted to live my life through through learning and finding Munger and, and Buffett and and then beyond that, all these you know other great leaders and, and people. So that, that's the kind of you know, paradox of an answer. Right? I, I mean, I remember picking up like Port Charlie's Almanac off my dad's bookshelf. But I think even if I hadn't, even if it hadn't been that explicit, I think what you're saying, like I was still like attuned to the values of Munger from my upbringing. And so like what that was so, felt like a very natural fit to like kind of carry the the intellectual and moral baton forward. Um, mm. Well, it's, it's weird because it's a, my, my, my old man, he... he He's been bankrupt a couple of times. He's never really had a proper corporate job. You know, never really didn't, doesn't invest. Um, and 
and, and, and looking back now, I think, Will, you and I have spoken about this a few times, right? Like, I'm probably, you know, emotionally scarred and or somewhere on the line in terms of the bankruptcies and just the pressure of, and just me thinking maybe probably unconsciously, like, why, why is this happening? Like, what, what can you do to stop that? And then eventually found, you know, I guess, you know, different ways to live your life or think about business and spend your time and then obviously your money and so that stuff like that couldn't happen, right? And so that's a weird way that it, it come from having a hero, you know, in, in your dad and then actually that leading to something else, which obviously, you know, I've never met Charlie Munger or Buffett yet. I've probably learned more from them or just as much from them than I have from my, from my old man, you know? That's that's awesome. Okay, uh, I, I, interesting. I have a pattern of friends who, whose families went bankrupt when they were kids, and it really inspired them to understand finance and you know swing that pendulum the other way. The next generation, uh, Will uh, Willow, what, what who who comes to mind yeah. for you? So there's some there's some as you might expect there's some parallels in our story, um, but but also some some really interesting differences. I think there's. Um, my, my father didn't go bankrupt and experienced a degree of corporate success, but I think my, one of my main lessons from him was the, the lesson of corporate success potentially being hollow if one hasn't aligned oneself with authenticity. So although, and, and I mean, Will and I actually originally, I think the first phone call we had, we literally spoke about Munger, right? I was working at, at this third bridge business, um, one of the major expert networks. And, and you know, he was asking me, well, how do you spend your day? Um, what does this work involve? And, and within minutes, we were talking about some of Munger's ideas and, and putting those into practice in, in studying business. And... And so, so it's kind of this, this like a mirroring, I feel, in, in our stories where, where our fathers actually you know, like haven't met but would get along extremely well, <laughs> speak the same language. I, I have a sense that, that Will's father has, you know, the, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting um, to, to explore how that also brought us together. Um, yeah, what and, was, and the way, yeah. What was that um, background? Like, where, where did you, where did you guys come from and how did you come to meet each other? So on a, on a phone call, we were hiring at third bridge and. It's and a funny story was, actually, right? I was introduced story. to this guy by, by the, <laughs> like the, the division head, right? It's like, Hey, I don't like the phone call. I say, I, I don't get this guy. <laughs> right, he's like doesn't fit into any box, uh, yeah, but I think you'll like him. And that was part of like the, that. The, the, this guy who you know he actually was was the the first one to start this, or was the first employee of the business unit. We ended up growing into I don't know thirty thirty five million unit at Third Bridge within within six seven years. Um, and his genius was to kind of spot people, although in ways he couldn't articulate it. He he had an intuition, and and so past the phone to me, he's like, "Hey, I don't get this guy. Have a word with him." And um, and I think when I told Will that the the work that we were doing and the way we'd set up the process involved interviewing executives and reading for four or five hours a day, he's just like, 
fuck off. I don't, I don't buy it. Like this, this not. Like, it's too good to be true. No, this is. I mean, I, I think I mean I've shared this elsewhere, but I, I didn't sign my employment contract for the first month because I, I also couldn't imagine that what they described to me in this work was actually possible. So you guys met as a result of which one of you was like interviewing the other? Is that how it worked? Yeah, so I, I was actually, yeah, he, he was interviewing me. Yeah, I was me. hiring. I was hiring. We were hiring for, for analysts. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, and, and the funny story is that I, I had a job. I was already working at, I, I was actually working at a hedge fund at the time, like, a, you know, a, a decent hedge fund in London and didn't actually tell Fadbridge and, and, and Will and, 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 and the guys there that I was, that I was, I took another job and I took, and, and which is also really weird because, I, I took a job and everyone was really congratulating me and saying, well, you got into this great finance group, great job, you know, but I didn't reject Fabrice. I didn't tell them. And it's, it's obviously something in my unconscious that went like, actually, this is what you should probably be doing. Interesting. So uh, will you tell us what is Third Bridge? What were you guys doing there? I mean, it's it's Fabridge's, uh, well, they would call it an expert network, started by two former Bain guys. Long story short, it's that, Two consultants pretty much built uh, a GLG version in Europe, which is how Fedbridge kind of started. Um, and and the business is very simple, right? It's it's connecting mainly investment companies, but frankly, anyone, corporates or, or, or consultancies that want to speak to operators, right? Or people in, in industry experts. And so the original business in the industry is, uh, you know, private one-to-one phone calls. So roughly a customer will pay a thousand dollars, get access to speak to a, an industry executive for, for an hour. Um, but they were private. And then what Furbridge was doing, and this is what Will and, and I eventually, you know, met and started to build was the content side of the business, which is very simply, a, you know, we were conducting the interviews internally and then recording them, transcribing them, and selling subscriptions to hedge funds and private equity funds globally to to read and learn about businesses. Yeah, so that was the that was the business unit at Third Bridge uh, where you guys met and started to work on, and you're just living this dream of like, oh my god, I get to interview interesting people and read all day, and like people pay me to do it. Like this is awesome. Um, what was the what was the story? of the transition between like, we're living the dream, but working for somebody else versus like, oh my God, we've got to go fight the fight and do this thing ourselves. Cause you, you found it in practice. Um, but I, I, I guess I don't know how long it was, how long you were doing that before you spun out. What was the motivation to spin out? Uh, kind of that, that concept. I was there for a total of five years. Uh, Will for three, he joined me two years into that experience of building this unit um, for for Third Bridge. And really quickly, just for, for a tiny bit of context on the industry. So it's around a $2 billion industry. The majority of that, the, the volume of work that takes place is uh, consists of one-to-one interviews. And that is a mix of everything from your McKinsey's and Bain's on the consulting side to private equity funds to credit funds, distressed funds, debt investors, and then the whole equity investing world, public public market equity investing. Um, the the industry is dominated by, as Will mentioned, GLG, um, and the top 
probably the top five, six players have two thirds of the market. So it's, it's reasonably, it's, 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 not super concentrated, but there's a few dominant players and and there are meaningful advantages to scale. And so that is a... Yeah, yeah. there's a little bit of a network effect there, right? Because they, they have all the executives signed up. They have the kind of contracts on the customer side. Yeah, so that, that makes sense. Well, I right. guess we'll find out, right? In, uh, <laughs> and this is interesting, right? In, in, in this is part of the years, context right? for... For how we are, what what led us to be in, maybe insane enough to to start something in in an industry that's reasonably mature, right? It's been around. These services have been around since the nineties. Um, the the established players, the, they're they reasonably sticky relationships that these businesses have with their customers. Um, there's a really meaningful compliance component in the way customers look at these services. Um, there, there's a, a good de- a good degree of risk aversion with new providers. Um, and so, so yeah, so to have, to have a shot, uh, you know, that we can, we can speak a little about what, what right we have, or we feel we have to exist. Um, the, the story has yet to be written for the most part. Right? Uh, the story is being it's, written uh, every day, but you know, the blows uh, are still falling. It's a beautiful, it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. By all means. Um, and so, so we, I think one thing, one, one thing we asked ourselves very early on, the work is just so much fun. So the, the, one of the first questions was like, how can we create a system to do this forever? Right? Like, is there a way that was the sort of instinctual unconscious, like I have no control over that drive kind of thing, which is just like this, if we could do this for a really long time, that would be a lot of fun. Um, and then, and then there was, I, I think, thinking about the industry structures, uh, participating in the industry, thinking about what room was left for basically a for different forms of niche providers, and then, and then getting on embarking on that whole adventure of like, how do you match the market opportunity for what what we came to feel was a, a lower price, high quality offering. For a subset within our customer universe at, at Third Bridge, um, in the public equity investing space, and and what is authentic to ourselves, it's something that we're still going through right now, right? Which is what's really us, and you know, there's there's the theoretical market opportunity, and then there's like, what what are we here to do? Like, there's plenty of things that we could do that we're not made for, and that's that's you know, ego gets in the way, all sorts of. Um, yeah, so so I think that's that's something that we deal with. Like we're dealing with right now, actually, a lot is is what's really deeply authentic to who we are, and and how can we make that contribution? Um, yeah, in a way that, that that where authenticity is aligned with with a hopefully correctly diagnosed market opportunity, right? Yeah. So t- tell me that um, you know maybe in a little more detail the opportunity that you saw. I know kind of one of the things that's endemic to the industry, though mature though it is, is like a huge take rate. There's also kind of a it's kind of a homogenous approach. Like you know, there's a real brand difference between you know GLG or kind of those other handful of leaders, as far as I can tell. Um, I'm an outsider to the industry, but, um, and, and then you mentioned kind of niches within, uh, the demand side. So is there, was there something specific that you were like, oh, that, like, that's our, that's our into the industry. Like that's where we're going to kind of put the tip of the spear. 
I think one thing that is worth just discussing is that the industry is very different based on the customer, right? So a private equity fund, a consultancy, and a and a hedge fund are obviously very different entities. They use the they use the services in different ways. Specifically, that the, the hedge fund or the public equity side, it's a private equity and consultancies kind of work together. Um, but on the on the hedge fund side, it's, it's a very different ball game. And you know, we we were obviously producing the content at Fabric. So we were we were do, conducting the interviews. We were also going out and selling the subscriptions with the sales team, right? So we were actually going on the ground, meeting funds, pitching the products, understanding what they wanted, understanding why they wouldn't sign subscriptions. And, and so we, you know, we had this hypothesis that, well, when we have kind of knew because we were seeing the feedback that a lot of these services were getting quite expensive, especially for relatively smaller hedge fund managers, right? So startup funds, one or two man shops, but also even up to like 10, 10 man shops, right? It's, you know, paying 50K, you know, whatever is 100K is, is expensive, right? Um, so we knew there was a long tail of, of, of a market out there of people that would be willing to pay for, for high quality, you know, content. Um, and and we could produce the content, right? So so you know so so we knew that there we knew how to run the business, you know we knew how to produce the content, and and we kind of had an understanding of what the customer and also frankly like we just love doing this work, right? We, we want to understand how the world works, and and this is the perfect opportunity to do that through business and studying great businesses. So you know what we what we realized was that actually. You know, we love doing this work and we want to build a system that can you know can sustain this work for decades to come but we also knew that a much more affordable solution would be attractive to many and then we just wanted to decide on 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 kind of what we wanted to, to explore right and so really we this is where we came to in practice which was a much more affordable solution plus studying what we believe are high quality typically owner operated businesses that that we believe are just Fantastic, you know. Yeah, so that's, that's that's kind of what we do. Yeah, the ability to kind of direct your own attention to because you don't have to like guess what the hedge funds are doing or just you know research what's assigned. Like you, you guys assume right you get to kind of pick what rabbit holes you want to go down now. Exactly, and we also you know, Furbridge the the foreign business at Furbridge was particularly interesting because it was the first time that that an expert network was their own client, if, if you understand what I mean. So for example, we were conducting the interviews internally, whereas historically you'd wait for Bain or a hedge fund to come and say, I want to speak to someone at Google. Actually, we were internally being the client, right? So we were taking a stance of what we thought was interesting. So so we were pretty confident that we could, you know, pick up particularly, you know, particularly interesting companies or also just understand how to analyze them. And we spent years refining the approach of, you know, just hot, I guess, business analysis, reading through filings, doing all that kind of grunt work, right? And then also finding the executives, connecting with people and, and understanding how to interview them, which we can get onto later on. So we, we kind of had all of the ingredients, but obviously you just never know if, you know, if people want to pay for it, right? <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. And, and, and it turns out they do. Well, so far, so so good, right? We're still here, so you yeah. <laughs> must be doing something right. We, and you're coming in on the kind of the low end of the, market too, right? I mean, you, I heard you mention affordability in there and, and kind of the price strain that some of this puts on 
and the, the interesting point is that as with all of these things is that, you know, you, you have a hypothesis, you know, it, you find an effective or efficient way to test it. You know, we, we thought we had a somewhat efficient way, even at Furbridge from the data that we had and, and the feedback that we were getting. Uh, yeah, and also, Furbridge just wouldn't serve those clients, right? It just wasn't worth their time to set a 10K subscription, right? So so we knew there was a market out there. Um, but then as with all these things, the market evolves, you know, Tagus and Mosaic, you know, had a better mousetrap than Furbridge. And, and and so, you know, you've got to adapt and you've got to be, you, you know, you've got to pay attention to, to what customers want, how their expectation of services evolve. And, and so, you know, our original hypothesis may have been tested, but we've also evolved in, in what we think is a solution that we want. And frankly, like it, a lot of it comes from what we would just want ourselves, right? As, as customers, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about this. Like I have, I have such a, um, I get really excited when I find businesses that are solving like multiple problems at once and that are just like, I think to, you know, Will, Will Oliver's point, like the authenticity, like when the founder's interest and the customer's interest and like a quality business all kind of overlap in the same thing. I, I feel like, you know, you two were both kind of already driven by this question and curiosity and appreciation for the work and then found a way to build a business around it on top of it and then aligned with, you know, your values and your interests and the way you want to spend your time. And I think that there's one question that like summarizes this to me that I, we have talked about before and that I think is in a lot of these docs that I think like in practice is maybe best explored as a potential, uh, as a vehicle for answering this question, which is what are the hundred highest quality public businesses in the world today? Like that is a question everyone should want to know the answer to and millions of people do. And the answer is, is maybe less interesting than all of the different ways to specifically go about it. Um, and I think you guys like arranged your lives in your business to solve this problem in a way that's super interesting. And every word carries weight in that sense, right? Like I know you guys have thought so much about quality and so much about quality in business. And I, I was just going to like pull your string on that and have you like you know, show us that world in the context of that question. Well, but it's, it's not even the answer that, that also is that only matters, right? It's, it's all how you get there. It's like, how, how do you build a system that can make me, understand what quality means in business and then more importantly you know for our customers our investors like how do you build conviction to allocate capital to those those companies right so what we think about is that process of you know if you think of step one how do i source companies or or, or you know stuff to research how do i build an understanding and then towards the end of the process it's how do i really build conviction and you know back to how in practice and these things evolve is that you know, just executive interviews is not the, you know, not the solution, right? You don't just, you don't just do interviews from executives and then find out, you know, everything you need. A lot of it comes from conversations with other investors, you know, whether that's on private or on the phone or with your friends. Like, so we're, we're always thinking of new ways to, to help people learn in, in this format, because it's more about actually us building a system for people to, to find those, especially since that answer is going to change all the time, right? You've got to be able to exactly. refine that answer constantly. Well, and and you can't you can't buy conviction from someone else, right? If I give you a hundred companies, like so what? Right? You can't you can't buy the conviction you have in that. And so this is also you know, what we think. You know, part of the another hypothesis that we have is that 
especially in the industry now, no one focuses on helping investors really build conviction. You know, like arguably, you know, the expert networks could argue that. I mean, a lot of sales side could argue that as well. But, you know, frankly, like that's more on the kind of, we call it the pre-conviction stage. It's more like just analysis, right? Making them, helping them understand. Like really building conviction takes time, but, it, you know, it can come from mainly conversation and debate and dialogue with others mainly friends and other investors is what our hypothesis is yeah maybe you can uh maybe you can rent conviction but you can't buy it or, or what's what's the the bezos quote like you can uh i can explain it to you but i can't understand it to you and there's there's like big difference quote. yeah and, and and this is also you know, conviction is this is the is the foundation to really compound you know capital right and and, and you and and actually, you can analyze as much as you want, right? If you don't have a conviction and, and find a way to to help your customers build conviction or, or just find conviction yourself, then it's going to be difficult to really hold on in those, you know, tough times of Amazon having a 90% drawdown in, in, in the end of 2000s or whatever, right? You know? Yeah, and being willing to hold it for yeah, tw- 20 more years. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a... Uh, fun i can't remember the name off the top of my head i think i have it in my notes actually of of, that um managed to hold amazon and it's like somewhat of a legendary investment um in in these circles like because they actually it it is the perfect example of like simple idea executed incredibly well um is that uh, oh nick nick sleep and zach zakaria yeah 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 nick sleep i think bill miller's held held it for ages as well um yeah Will, will barker i think was a in there too for a long time um, but that is, and, and this only comes from conviction, right? Uh, you know, uh, which is, which is the almost the hardest, like it's the hardest service to sell, right? To someone, right? But we're, we're, what we're interested in, you know, mainly for, just for, for ourselves, because we're curious about it, is like, how do you build a system? You know, we, we think we have one, in, one ingredient, right? Which is executive interviews today. We do stuff on the outside, right? We do some weekly write-ups. We do some, other dialogues that we're ramping up, but you know, this kind of all falls into the somewhat analysis stage, right? And so, you know, we're thinking a lot. How do how do we help investors really build conviction in in some of the companies that we're studying? So, yeah, how do we um, how do we want to unpack the concept of the, the highest quality public businesses? I know this is something Will always thought a lot about, um, and I have received. Many, many, uh, earfuls about the concept of quality. And I think, like, I want to dig into this, the concept and the systems that you guys have. Well, it's, it's a, I mean, the first thing is it's a really hard topic to get your hands on, right? It's like talking about, you know, try defining truth, try defining value, right? It, it takes, it's, it's a, it's a rabbit hole type topic that you can approach from a, and I don't know if you've come across Ian McGilchrist's work, um, a, a British, a British academic that talks about, um, ways of seeing the world and, and the left versus right hemisphere ways of seeing things. And that, that's, that's one framing, um, you could look at it, they, 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 both hemispheres or each hemisphere offers a, a slightly different take on reality. The left hemisphere is more practical, analytical, rational. You could look at it in terms of psychodynamically as the seat of your ego. 
The right hemisphere is open awareness. It's the awareness that a bird uses to scan the environment for predator, predators, right? The left hemisphere is looking for food, right? Trying to distinguish an object from its background. So two fundamental, that analogy I think is quite helpful, right? There's that open awareness from the right hemisphere. So, so to bring that into quality, there is, you know, on the right hemisphere side, you get into Persig, right? And the Tao and are almost a religious tradition in answering the question, right? It's, it's, it's this sense of an intuition, right? You, you know quality when you see it, right? You have these quips, right? But you know, you know, when you see it, part of the joke is that you can't articulate what it is. I just feel it, right? Um, there's something about a resonance, right? Quality, you sense it. You, it relates to authenticity in interesting ways. Um, and then you could, I think one way I've come to see it from that maybe more right hemisphere perspective is um, quality. If you imagine a multi-party stakeholder model, right, where you have, you can look at it in a business context where you have customers, employees, shareholders, maybe the local community, maybe society at large, the ecology, and then if you want to go really far into multi-stakeholder, future generations, right? And I, I, I think I've come to see quality in business as win-win dynamics in those stakeholder relationships. We, get, we can get into why win-win matters um, and how that relates to quality. But I've, I've, to get to the point quickly, and maybe we can unpack it, is to it's, it's a business embedded in win-win dynamics um, at multiple levels of that stakeholder hierarchy. And the higher the quality, um, the more win-win dynamics you see the business embedded in. Um, and and, and, so then, that, and the, that's, less, yeah. the less sort of uh, interfaces, the, the less places that the business conflicts with the environment, the longer the entity can be assumed to be around. And that is the source of all of the returns, the, the long-term nature of it. Right. So that, and that's the sort of 20,000 foot view um, around resonance, around, I think about quality, I think about biology, I think about natural systems, I think about, you know, redwood groves, right? I think about something that stood the test of time that is so deeply resonant with its environment. Yeah. That Alligators, cockroaches, redwood right. trees. <laughs> Right. What can what can we learn about them and and the way they're 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 so, um, and and then you, I mean there's this I, I that that whole right hemisphere lens on things invites um, you know more abstract questioning around authenticity around um, the edges of what can really be described about quality. Left hemisphere is more left hemisphere wants to put things in a checklist. Right. And and wants a sort of more scientific, rational, sort of local definition, which is super practical. And I think it's not it's not the one I, I think what we're trying to do at in, really in, in our business is a synthesis of both perspectives. Right. It's how do we take some sort of more metaphysical description of quality and bring that into. You know, really practical approaches to, to understanding and exploring quality in its extremely practical manifestations in competitive environments um, in, in business. Yeah, I, I think the, the people who, um, it is an interesting theme that some of the most, some of the people who are uh, divergently successful all sort of seem to have their roots in studying nature. 
Um, and somebody that you introduced me to that, that fits this is D Hawk, who I'm like obsessed with now that you have introduced me, uh, the founder and CEO of Visa. And like, you know, you go read his book and it is, it is not what you are expecting it to be. It's very, um, it's really almost natural philosophy. Like I, I would love to hear kind of what you guys have le- learned from him and what you've applied um, to in practice that, that came from him or even in the case of Visa, like what, you know, what is it about his insights that made Visa the incredible company that it is? I, and that the business is insane. I mean, to zoom right into an extremely practical, before get, we may get into Visa, but I, I think one thing that, that I, I'd, I'd be very excited to share is around Hawk's concept of educing. And and actually, I suppose, you know, it's it's actually, you can't really talk about that without alluding to the way Visa was structured. But for us, practically, we think about this in interviews and in conducting conversations. And it's really foundational for us, this idea of, in interviews, removing barriers to the free flow of information. Effectively, what DHawk did with Visa in structuring that business in a trustless environment, right? A business whose fundamental right to exist is, is trust, right? In, this, in, in the 19, 1960s banking system in the US was he had an insight through his study of natural systems um, as, as to how humans function their innate creativity, innate possibility, innate gifts. Um, so there's really something that that I think he, it's it's a it's a very constructive worldview, um, a, a view that a view that harnesses human instincts for cooperation as much as competition. Um, and and what D talks about in building Visa was he he talks about effectively removing obstacles to innate problem-solving capabilities that we have in order to create. And then you've got his hierarchy of the purpose for the organization. But 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 it's it's this this philosophically, the underpinnings of Visa are this idea that you remove obstacles to to, to a very natural inclination that human beings have to contribute towards hopefully and, and the more clearly articulated the purpose is, the more chances of success you've got. And for us, really practically that that idea is carried all the way through into interviewing. And and is it the foundation of our process in an industry that frankly looks at the interview process as something as an extractive process, right? You even have, you know, it's very common and it's not to judge, but people say, you know, talk about picking brains. People talk about, um, you know, people talk about extracting information in finance. And and while that yeah, may be, you know, in, yeah, digging yeah. in, right? And that's all fine. But what that what what what's what's implicit in that view is a subject-object relationship, an almost adversarial relationship that people can very easily fall into where it's like, I've, I've got you, I'm paying, and especially in our business, I'm paying for your time as an executive, and I'm going to take all I can get. As opposed to, we're here together, let's go somewhere together, let me understand what you would like from this interaction, how you can experience some form of value as far, you know, participate in the value that's being created. How can I really put, you know, and, and, and how can we go somewhere together? And, and that, that, that can really transform, you know, obviously the way, the way people, the way you can relate to people, what you can talk about, where you can go, how their, their willingness to volunteer information. And, and I think it's over the years as we've, you know, by the way, I don't think we, you know, we came into, this work, I think maybe with with a an implicit or some sort of 
maybe appreciation for this, but we have to cultivate that because through trial and error, really through making mistakes and through being extractive, being aggressive in our line of questioning, of not investing enough time trying to understand what a win is for the person we're interviewing, not enough time trying to understand who they are because everyone's under pressure to, you know, um, yeah, this, that, that, yeah. So, but a lot, a lot about Hawk is incredible. I mean, there's so many, so many things. Are, are, uh, <laughs> is the left and right hemisphere a reasonable metaphor for like you two in the division of labor and in practice? Like Will, Will Barnes, are you the left hemisphere and Oliver's the right? I think you've, I think you've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> just a hunch, just a hunch. It, it, it's, it's, it's also just, but back, back to this point on quality, because you know, I'll get to the point in a second, but it's, whether you're a founder or an, an investor, when you talk about, like, it has to be authentic to you, right? Like, we're running this business because it's us. Like, if we were selling pet food online, you know, we would have failed 18 months ago, <laughs> you know, right? Like, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a deep rooted, you know, authentic side of, of, of this that needs to align to actually create something that is high quality. And we, we focus on that a lot and, and bring in both of our world views together, um, either whether that's right side, left side, or, you know, you name it, bring it together and, and build something that is, is a reflection of what we, what we both, who we both are, right? And what we believe in. Um, something I found in your guys' notes, um, that I think is interesting because as I think it's a truism, but it's one of these things that you expect to be kind of arbitrage away is general practices in the investment management industry are generally poorly designed for the pursuit of truth. And, and I'm like, I want to, from you guys' view, like, why is that? What are, what are the blockers? Um, cause I think part of what you did in escaping, you know, a traditional fund was in order to be able to design your own processes. But everyone is, you know, everyone in that investment industry is in pursuit of truth. So why why are we, why does that arbitrage still exist? Like, what are people stuck doing? Um, maybe maybe they're not in pursuit right? of it, right? Maybe yeah. they're not. Yeah, I guess the, the uh, declaration that one is in pursuit of truth is, is very different than the practicality of it. I think a lot of it is, is down to the institutional structure of, or funds themselves, right? And, you know, it's the classic career risk. And if you underperform for a couple of years, you know, good luck keeping a lot of your your clients in this business, right? And so that just unconsciously pushes people towards a, a mentality, a, a way of working, of investing that is, is probably very far from, from Buffett and Munger and those type that they actually, they, they worship, you know? So if you guys, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to understand the, the structure, I guess, in the incentive. So, um, you know, and in practice, you learn a ton about and pursue sort of, you are incentivized to pursue this truth and this question of what are the highest quality public businesses in the world. But in practice, it's not an investment fund, but it does the work that you do and the things that you learn enable you to better invest your own capital personally, where you do have an indefinite time horizon and can sort of freely pursue truth. Um, but that those are very... Those are synergistic, but very distinct and deliberately distinct things. Is that is that true? How how much of like a intentional decision was that? I think it's 
completely in- intentional around. I think also, again, it, it comes from while we're doing this work. Right? Like we, so I used to cover distressed debt at Furbridge, right? I, I was covering the, the, the shittiest companies in Europe you could find pretty much, you know, that, that have over levered balance sheets and, and bonds trading at 30 cents, right? And so I, I would saying, add though, what we couldn't keep Will from doing while he was in distress was the odd interview on his joinery <laughs> or Burford Capital, or there'd be like, you know, we'd review the, the monthly output as a team and it'd be like, sort of, hold on, wait, what, what is this here? And he just sucked like, into something. And yeah. he just, he just sneaks in, right? As like a compliment to the distress, the, 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 some, the, the some quality, guys, some quality yeah. mid sized compounder. <laughs> Right? Some, some dis- so... dis- distressed guy studying like Berkshire, like, like <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but I think, you know, this, and this is kind of, you know, why we're doing this work, yeah, not, not specifically because we want to invest our money now. Right. You know, and, and I think the way we look at this is that we need to be as close to our customer as possible. And actually, if we just behave and, and act and, and frankly, we see ourselves as the customer anyway. Um, but, but also, you know, we, we believe if we can be as close to the customer, we will we will build the best service in the industry f- for our core target customer. And, and if we do that, then you know the, the system will evolve and and eventually we'll have the knowledge from the work that we do to to go and allocate capital to those founders and operators that that we've been studying for yeah. for a long time. Just briefly on that, there's something about the. An interest in building a system that both un- that united both of us from a very early stage, from really like the very first um, few days we met and, and started exchanging ideas. There's this sense of of building a system to surface truth and high quality information, and then an attraction that both of us had that we kind of live in in slightly different ways, but markets just being this amazing testing ground for ideas where you actually have a feedback loop, right? And so so there's, how do we learn? How do we, there's like an element of self-discovery for both of us. Like, what are we made of? Who are we? What do we love? Why am I here? What is, you know, how do I experience some kind of meaning in life as a participant in this, you know, golden lotus safari shit show, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> right? It's like, it's this, this uh, it's, and, and, and so there's this system that we were interested in. And then, and then the, you know, and I, I think, and Will, maybe if you, you know, you can articulate it differently if, if you see it differently, but there's something about building the system and investment results as an output of inputs, right? And Will's been investing for a number of years. I'm really a student of his for the most part. I have no original ideas. I, what I invest in is I look through his stack and stuff that I can understand that, that I, you know, could really grasp and, and where, <laughs> where I sense there's some, you know, I'm big on my win-win dynamics, feel. right? Yeah. Right. There's like, I'll filter through his pile and, and, but, but really that, that, you know, there's an output of the system, right. And, and learning. And, and I think that's where there is a big difference. Although we are, you know, we see ourselves as our own customers there is something about the primacy of the system and the inputs that go into that system that produce outputs, and and that that those outputs could be you know those those outputs will be performance of the businesses that we that we put our capital in. But so so let's talk through the let's talk through the blueprint of the system. You know we we've kind of talked around it a little bit, but um, you know let's start with maybe the the micro or the, the macro of the kind of components of in practice and. Um, uh, 
do a section on that and then probably end up with the mechanics of the conversations themselves. Cause I think you guys are world-class experts in, you know, dialogue and interview and, and sort of learning in one-to-one conversations. So, um, but, but let's start with, you know, the, you know, the, the system as you think of it, this system for divining truth and, and, you know, filtering down to a filter on a filter on a filter. Like how, how do you, um, how do you run that process? Where does it, where does it start? Yeah, the first place that we've started and actually, you know, it's not necessarily the best first place to start. It's just kind of also what we've been used to, right? Like, you know, we, we come from a business that was learning from operators, right? And, and so naturally we left and, and, and we, we've been doing what we know, which I guess what everyone does, right? Which is interviewing executives. So the core, the core of our offering is, is a library of, of interviews with operators, as we've discussed. Um, but, but going back to this process of, 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 you know, what the customer wants and how, you know, we, we did a lot of work on how people learn about businesses. You know, what are the process and the stages of, of how you first discover a company? How do you dive in? How do you learn? What do you need to understand? And then eventually, how do you build conviction? So what we think about from a kind of higher level point of view, of, you know, putting aside our position in, in the industry, which we can talk about later on if you're interested, but just, you know, how we think about our solution is making sure that when someone comes into in practice and, and, you know, whether they're searching for a company or they know a company, they can, they can get up to speed very quickly on, you know, if I'm looking at Wayfair, for example, I can understand what they do, who the management are, the shareholder structure, you know, really kind of condense the, the filings and, and all that kind of grunt work that you need to do to really, un- and get to the, what really matters. So that's, that's the first part of it. And then, you know, beyond that, we have this kind of analysis phase, right? Which is, again, you know, expert interviews. We do some, you know, in practice dialogues right now, investor dialogues, which is, you know, a group of investors come together and discuss the company. We do weekly analysis. So the, all these different types of content help you analyze and understand. And then, you know, we're going to experiment with new features going forward, user to user engagement, more of a forum based uh, type experience to help people learn from each other, right? Which, you know, a big part of how we learn is from each other, from other investors, you know, debating our ideas, right? And and actually asking people to pick holes in our hypothesis about a company. So that, that's that's what we really focus on, you know, on a micro level and understand exactly how, how do people, how do people think? How do people learn about companies? What What is missing for them? How can we better serve them? And, and that's, that's how, our solution will evolve, you know, and then operationally, it's a whole other question, right? About the kind of the shit show of, of actually just doing this work, right? And speaking to thousands of executives and finding great people and organizing people to find those great people, like all, all of that behind the scenes is a lot of, a lot of work, you know, that, that we, that we have to organize ourselves for to, to actually get the, you know, the outputs. Yeah. I imagine it's a t- tremendous amount of work. It's, it's the, is the information that comes from executives, like, you know, if there's a, if there's a pie chart of conviction, like how much comes from, you know, the standard public investment docs and, and just kind of like reading what's available, how much comes from, uh, you know, maybe information that is proprietary to your conversations or it's, whatever it's, other It's a great are. question, right? And, and it also depends on the person, it depends on the investor. I mean, and depends on the company, right? Like, for example, if you guys study Constellation software, like, 
I mean, if you understand broadly how these serial acquirer type businesses work, you know, and you can probably get pretty good conviction just from reading Mark Leonard's letters and, and, and looking at the numbers, you know, you can, and, and, and the performance, right? You can probably get quite good conviction. Whereas other companies like Good Luck, you need to speak to many people. You know, so it's it's tricky. It depends on the person, their style, and it also depends on also the experience that you have, uh, you know, in, in different sectors, but also the company itself. Right? All we know is that it's not only one thing, right? That's what we know. <laughs> it's not only executive interviews. It's not only just different investors. Again, it's it's a it's a mosaic of of, of different well, pieces of information. And and to bring in just the most overused word in <laughs> one of the most overused words in the English language today, right? Community. And, and, and that is part of, of a way we solve problems. There's something about, um, you know, we've been reluctant to use it much because there's so much baggage associated, so much bullshit, frankly, around, you know, we are a learning community. I mean, what does that even mean, right? It's, you know, there's so much, there's, there's a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of big claims made by many businesses around community. Um, and then there's, you know, to, to Will's point, and, and maybe, you know, echoing some of what you said, that there's there's many ways to learn about something. And and there's something that that I, I think both, well, resonates for both of us is around building a space, a container for that, well, for the flow of information and, and really building structures that will surface high the highest possible common denominators right in people ideas um and matters for study um that, that really communities are incredibly good at right you have communities of practice high quality learning communities are incredible tools and it's where we you know we share a connection to blast and to the lattice work and 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 you know everything for me from the people i've met through we met through through lattice right we um, and, and have been learning from each other since. I have the number of people I have met through that community, as well as the raw material that, that's provided as fuel for for for, for it, engagement. It comes from trust, right? It comes from trust. You know, you you trust Blas, and Blas has built trust with all of all of those users. And I think it, 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 you know, we think a lot about the sequencing of a business, right? Like, you know, how do you how do you scale an organism like like a business, right? And what are the state what are the different products or services you will roll out at what time? And I think what we potentially or hope, one of our hypotheses was that if we can build trust with our users, you know, professional investors, concentrated public equity investors through our interviews, through high quality work, you know, we will build trust. And then based on that trust, you know, you can, you can you, you then have the foundation of a community, right? And then it just depends on what the UI and the you know the format and and, and the level of you know what how do you want to engage the community? But I think you know it, it's it comes from trust, and that's that's the that's the grunt work, right? That's the hard thing to to build over time. Well, yeah, tr- trust is earned, and uh, you know only through really the currency of like time. I think you know it, it is very very. I, trust earned through a shortcut is really no trust at all. I think you know, um, it, and it, it is all, not always necessarily like synchronous time. I think that's one of the really interesting things, like available, like the leverage available to us now. It's like they just, you know, 
hundreds and hundreds of maybe thousands of hours of, of writing and conversation and stuff that all of us have shared that allows like this sort of asynchronous built of trust, but it still comes from this reservoir of time that we invested in, you know, constructing something and writing it and sharing it and um, getting that out there. Well, and, and it's harder to build, you know, online because there's just scarce attention, right? I mean, everyone's, pulled in millions of different directions and so you have to have something that's somewhat not only you know, high quality but but also differentiated right that, that, that you actually and if you just repeat that week in week out you know hopefully it will, again the hypothesis is that you, you 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 aggregate a group of people that trust you and and then what we're excited about is what we can do with that community so let's talk about the uh the sort of microcosm of an individual conversation that you enter into with an executive um, or, or somebody who knows about a company and how you how you approach that. I know uh, you know Will has Will has shared with me a bunch of docs and research and sort of everything from very philosophical to very tactical stuff about you know the art the art of dialogue. Um, it, how do you approach those conversations? What is your what is your goal? Um, or, or is there not explicitly not a goal? Uh, like, what do you, what do you do tactically and philosophically to approach that and sort of put that into your truth machine? How long do we have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this. We, we could have done the whole podcast on literally just it's, this exactly question. Right. I realize like, it's, it's an annoying, it's, you know, it's incompressible. It is, and but that that's that's exactly why it's so fun. Right. And like everything, you know, and it's an awesome every- question because that to, to bring in a left hemisphere, right hemisphere thing, you've got the left, the, the, and you know, I see it in myself. I want to, I want to put when I'm, when I'm thinking in that way, I want to, I want a checklist. I want something repeatable. I want, and then you have the reality of the human dynamic, which blows checklists to pieces, right? The first chance it gets. And reconciling those two, I guess that's the kind of backdrop to to this work. It's how can I notice the patterns, um, and and how can I also set myself free to to go where the water's flowing once it starts flowing. And and with that, I'll hand back over to Will. But this is this is the paradox of doing this work, right? And it's with this work specifically you know actually interviewing executives you know former it's, it's fairly specific work right it's former executives on a specific target company and we're looking to to have a conversation to to truly understand more about the company and there's there's many layers of different psychological bias and pressure you know baked into that but just at at, at a kind of higher level the paradox is that you have to prepare understand the business, understand what matters, you know, i.e. what customers really care about and understand that the executive can hit on that, but then be willing to kind of throw that all away and actually listen to the person. <laughs> and this is, this is the, this is the dynamic that, 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 that is really difficult because you can't let the executive just stand up and, and preach and, and, you know, and, and just let them say what they kind of want. You have to, you know, a juice, right? You have, you have to allow the information to flow, but make sure that it's the right, you know, it's, it's the right information that really matters, you know. And so, this is the kind of paradox that we that, that, that you really face. It's, it's it's understanding 
what matters, which is hard enough as it, as it is, right? Like, you know, just doing the work to to get to grips with companies, your wide range of companies, uh, effectively is hard enough as it is. And then also finding the executive and, and making sure they understand or you're aligned on what really matters. And then actually, when you're having the conversation, it's been willing to to flow and, and go with the executive in, in ways that they, you know, ways that they actually suggest. Because a lot of the time, actually, you know, it's just not, again, it's a hypothesis. I don't know. I think I know what matters, but actually, if if, if they're trying to tell me something, then maybe I don't know. You know, maybe I've got to listen. <laughs> so okay, so uh, that that is a very helpful kind of start. I'm like, I'm going to do a few sort of rapid tactical questions. So, new company, you're you're interviewing a first executive for a brand new company. What is what is good preparation? How how many hours do you put into understanding a company before you go to the first conversation with an executive? Depends on the on the company. At this point, I've kind of covered something similar at some point, right? So, but but normally, like, I mean, like 10, 15 hours on the company, right? I mean, it would evolve, like, reading, obviously, reading the the 10K, the filings, um, which you can do relatively quickly, um, you know, looking at the numbers, uh, and then also skimming through, you know, previous earnings transcripts or earnings calls, and then, and then, you know, previous investor days, stuff like that. So that, that takes a good chunk of time. Um, but then also spending a lot of time, like there's, cause there's, there's company preparation and there's actually interview preparation, right? So there's very two different things. So you want to just understand the basics of how the business works and what, what really matters. You have a hypothesis there and then actually understand what the, who the person is, right? What do they do? How do they spend their life? What are they really good at? Where's their competency lie? And hopefully, like the great interviews align perfectly, right? You have someone whose deep competence is exactly in what really matters, whether that's I don't know, operationally or sales, you know, selling selling certain products or whatever it may be. Um, but getting those two aligned is obviously core ingredients to actually start off on a good point. And then obviously there's the conversation. Which is where sort of the improv comes in, where you're like, you know, you come in with all these well choreographed questions, and then all of a sudden you're totally off in a different direction, and that's where all the extra work comes in. You know, that wasn't on the paper. Yeah, and and, and we talk a lot about the line of questioning rather than just the questions, right? And, and actually, how do you craft a a line of questioning that doesn't frame, doesn't well, as at least as less. Oh try and be unbiased, you know, in, in how you frame questions, right? But but also be willing to probe and dive and, li- and actually just actively listen. This is the hardest thing to do in all these, like, no one actually listens. Like, I, I find myself all the time not listening to interviews, you know, and like focusing on what I'm going to say next I'm, and, and looking elsewhere and actually not li- truly listening to, to the executive. And, and I go back and read some of the interviews that I've done. I'm like, I'm like this guy might have been, you could have held up, held up a sign about what really matters. And I still missed it. You know, like I, I just was not listening. And so, yeah, you can do as much preparation as you, as you want. If you're not truly listening, it's you're only getting a, a fraction of what, of the value. How, how often, um, how often do you get the, if you gain the insight in the interview and have a like, Oh shit moment during the conversation versus like, you have to go back and listen to it again. Cause you, cause then you're not like, you, you're not, thinking about your next step in the next move in the conversation you're you're it's truly almost easier to listen purely listen to the recording um do, do you go back and do you have more aha moments reviewing than you do actually in the conversation or do the epiphanies kind of come to you in those 
I, I think that the the insights solidify in, in the review, right? Like you, you know, you can the the real epiphanies come, and we've spoken about this a lot actually, and I recently about like how do you even get to that point? Like what what, is, what even is that feeling that you have? You know, and a lot of the time actually, it's when your original hypothesis are wrong. It's, it's, it's whether you, when you say actually, you know, economy, like the scale effects really, you know, really matters here. And actually, it's actually like, no, that's bullshit. It doesn't matter. This is what matters. And you're like, you know, wow. Okay. I can, and that's where you have to be able to like go with it and actually dive into it and actually have a, a 45 minute conversation on that one specific point because you were originally wrong or actually you know, argue why you might be right. And this, you know, so, but what we've realized is that potentially the real epiphanies come when you help the executive get to the edge of their competence, right? And actually, a lot of the time what we realize is that when we're having conversations with executives, sometimes they won't even realize they had that view or thought or, or idea, you know? And, and actually, you can take someone to a place in a conversation which which they've never been before, you know. And, so, and, and if you you can you can kind of interweave years, decades of experience to a place where they might question some of the things about a company, or or you know, if this would happen, you know, you can you can bring someone to a place where where it really creates truly differentiated insight and not just kind of reconfirming what you might have, have thought was important, right? And it's. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's, it's really difficult. Yeah, and as an investor, I mean, that's got to feel like you know you're, you're you're digging and you're digging and you're digging. You just you know found a diamond in the in the dirt, right? Like if you find you know that your hypothesis was wrong for reading, but you're the only one who's ever had this conversation, and you you but, know but then you've got to handicap it, right? For the first you've time, you've got to completely handicap that, right? This is this is the big challenge because actually, like, who is that person? What what worldview do they have? Like, did were, were they sacked? Do they hate the CEO? Like. All these things, you know, have to be taken with a pinch of salt. And again, that comes back to like the conviction part, and, and it's just one one data point. In uh, one more, one more maybe tactical thing you mentioned in there: uh, constructing a line of questions, not just you know, not just a collection of them. But when you when you're constructing a line of questions, um, how does that work? What are you driving for? Is is that like? almost a legal defense of what, you know, you're trying to reconstruct a whole thing. Is this, is this how you, are you pushing towards that edge of competence? Like what's the, yeah, what's the goal exactly. There? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and so typically, you know, what we've found is that only a couple of things really matter for com- certain companies, right? Like when you, if, if you get to a certain level of understanding, like basic understanding about a company, there's only typically one or two, maybe three things that really drive the equity, really drive the returns of the business. And, you know, and there's there's many ways to get to what really matters and actually understand what really matters. And what we found is that a lot of people will focus on the question, i.e., you know, how how can Fastenal improve their margin, their gross margin? You know, like how, where do you see how margins going? Like you know, that that's a question that gives you an answer, but doesn't give you the, the the fundamentals and the framework to actually understand what drives the gross margin. So a lot of what we do is we would have a line of questioning that would lead towards an understanding of gross margin improvement, right? So that might be looking at the relationship with suppliers and, you know, the contracts they have and how inventory flows through the system or how you manage, you know, store inventory and 
stuff like that. Like, you know, go back to the actual first principles and, and construct a line of questioning that could actually get you to understand the principles or the core drivers of gross margin. Then you, then you can kind of make your own decision if COVID hits, you know. And, yeah, and, and that's interesting. Yeah, so not, you know, don't ask how could it improve gross margin, but ask what are the what are the drivers of gross margin? What are the key? What are the rank order? What are they? How have they changed? Well, go go back to the principles of what makes up a gross margin, right? Like they buy a, they, they they source a product from a supplier. You know, there's a wholesale price. There's a there's a there's effectively a a retail price you sell it at, and, and then they turn them up, they turn a certain amount of it in, in, in a branch, right? So you can, if you have a branch manager, you can, you know, who's worked it for 20 years. I mean, he's seen a lot of gross margins, right? <laughs> he's seen 20 gross margins. And it's like, so you can, you know, you can really piece that together and actually get an understanding of how Fastnall's, I'm just using Fastnall as a random example, right? Like how their gross margin truly works. And then if you do see COVID or management claim they can grow much you can understand how that works and so again that's just one example of a line of question that and it, it can be anything that's i mean a lot of people what we used to do a lot was like the controversial stuff especially like in the just distressed debt world right like i mean these are companies that are going bust what you want to know is like is the company going to go bust or not like you know who <laughs> wants to know that right so mm-hmm. like or is it going to run out of cash and so but there's various different ways that we learn to actually get to that answer without Asking the really controversial question because no one wants to say yes or no. Yeah, they can't. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And no one wants to to really. I mean, and there's not really an answer a lot of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so I want to. I want to. Uh, I don't know. Not probably not quite end, but um, do, do a maybe a third quarter here, um, fourth quarter, which is talking through a few specific companies. And I've heard both of you use the phrase like what really matters a few times. Um, and I think it'd be really interesting to go through a few of, of some of your favorite companies that you've learned and talk through like what is the company? What do they do? And what really matters? You know, like what are the insights that you had that led you to there? And what are the, you know, few levers that, that drive this business? I know, um, Will Oliver and I have talked through Nathan Wines before. Um, and I think Burford is another, uh, really interesting one, but you guys, you know, Pick, pick whatever ones you want to run with and uh, let's talk through some practical examples. Which one would you prefer to talk about? Do I only get, do I only get one? I want, I want both. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can talk about Naked. I feel like I talk about Naked all the time. Right? People always ask us. It's funny because Naked is, in a weird way, it seems like Naked kind of puts us on the map a bit, right? Like a lot of people ask us about Naked. I think the interview we've done with the CEO um, you know, it, it was one of the top, it was the top interview we done last year and in terms of, you know, people reading it. So, um, I mean, with Naked, it's interesting because I come across this business five years ago, um, when I guess most people probably wasn't following it when it was part of Majestic Wine. Um, so, you know, they, Rowan, the, the original founder, you know, effectively had this idea that the value of the liquid in, in 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 a wine bottle was just far below the actual fund, the, the consumer price, right? So like really the consumers were getting ripped off. Um, and then actually there was a, a more effective way to build a, a business or a solution that would be win-win for consumers, winemakers and effectively 
the the business, right? And and what 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 I found originally interesting about Naked was that, and and actually now the company is communicating it much more effectively than they used to when they first list or spun out of Majestic was that there's a behavioral or call it emotional side of of Naked and there's like a rational side, right? So the rational side is like actually in a in a Naked bottle of wine, you know, you're paying to call it ten dollars and you're getting seven dollars of of liquid value wine, you know, actually so you get a much higher value because you're reducing the the kind of distribution and and marketing, right? Um that's the rational side. Like so a logical person would say, okay, that's great value. But there's also like the really the emotional side which which we believe kind of is the foundation of of, of the company, right? And it stitches together the I guess the architecture of the business, which is the fact that the consumers, the angels, are funding the the winemaker, and there's a there's a direct human relationship in in, in helping winemakers, you know, do their craft. Yeah, it feels better to pay a farmer and a winemaker and a vineyard owner with a name than a distributor. You know, and nobody's ever been psyched to pay a thirty percent margin to a distributor. Yeah, exactly. And so, again, and with Naked, I mean, this, this is still a very it's a small business, right? It's it's still learning um you know how to scale in the us is the big question um and, and again there's, there's various different levels of what matters for naked right now right i mean also different people will probably have different views but you know part of what we believe matters is kind of like two or three things so the first thing obviously is like can they crack the us right and so what is it? so another layer of that like okay well how my my big question is how can they communicate their proposition to the US consumer? Because the US consumer is very different to the UK consumer. You know, because the market structure is completely different, right? It's consolidated different ends. The gross big four grocers here practically own the market and just squeeze all winemakers. So you get kind of half cheap wine, but just from certain you know, a few different winemakers. In the US it's consolidated on the wine on, on, on the winery side, right? Constellation of the, those other brands. And so the, the the consumers pay for the roof in in in, in the US, right? And so, actually, how do you communicate what Naked would say is is great value and low priced wine? You guys won't touch it, you know. <laughs> so like, so how do you how do you communicate that to a US consumer who is already hesitant of paying fifteen bucks on a on a bottle of wine? And and also, what channels do you use in 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 the US? Because they use voucher in the UK. So there's there's a whole communication slash sales and marketing piece in the US, like cracking that market and obviously understanding the difference in the structure of the market, which is like is is a big piece that we're focused on. But then, but then beyond that is that you know one of the big questions that I had originally when I looked at Naked Wine was that actually the lifetime value and CAG ratio is not actually high. It's not particularly high at all, right? Um, you know, especially if you're used to like SAS type metrics and, and stuff like that, right? I mean, you're looking at two and a half times, you know, over five years, maybe three times, you know, depending on different. Yeah, they or, say or three cohorts, is really yeah. the like, you know, if you got less than three, you may not have a business. Right, exactly, right, and, and so th- this is what's particularly interesting about Naked, and you know, because someone someone could look at that and be like, actually, they're just not that exciting those economics, right, and. It's funny because the, the more companies I look at, actually, the 
the lower margin businesses I kind of get interested in more, more these days, right? Like I think it's more, again, it's these win-win dynamics where you're actually yeah, adding more aligned, less risk to disruption. Yeah. You're adding yeah. more value, right? And, and so the way we look at that is, is, is yeah, like the, the, the economics are not, you know, earning seven, eight times, you know, of, of CAC over, over years, but actually you're adding so much value. And again, the retention has to be there. I'll, you know, it's, it's pretty decent, you know, in the, in the cohorts that they have, but also could be also is unknown of you know for next for the, for the future. But it's 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 really understanding for us is okay. The the, the lifetime value is not that exciting, you know, in terms of relative to other companies in different industries. But actually, what is the long term retention given that kind of rational and behavioral business model? Plus, also, you know, what are the fixed what is the leverage, the operational leverage in the business that can, can improve that? And I think that's one thing that is not communicated by management enough and is not understood by a lot of investors. And also, we don't completely understand it ourselves yet is because you haven't seen it. But like, what is the leverage of this business if you're selling 10 times the volume through, through the business? You know, like if you're a winemaker and you're producing... 500,000 bottles like how what leverage do you get if you're producing 1.5 million because that could change that that could change the economics and you have a better business stickier winemakers yeah you get this to the winemaker scale do we need to add a ton more like uh interesting okay um and what about uh what about burford what are the what are the big levers of burford and maybe probably should start with an overview uh, of that one because that one is a little more a little more esoteric than direct to consumer wine <laughs> this one's pretty yeah it's pretty spicy i mean if you, I know, <laughs> the, the, the history of birth is pretty interesting um really i mean where do you start it's i mean you, you should be hesitant about any new any financial services businesses growing very quickly is also like a red flag to, to, to most people right and because you probably shouldn't grow those you know those types of businesses quickly but Historically, so they're effectively defining a new asset class, which is which is litigation finance, right? Um, in short, that means that if a corporate has uh, a legal case on their balance sheet, Burford Burford is a is a I could call it a third party provider of capital to unlock the value of that case. So historically, a, a corporate would work with a law firm; they would bring the case to court. Um, and, you know, and there'll be a resolution and a payout to, to, to either party. Burford now comes and takes part of that risk away from the corporate and, and is involved in effectively financing, uh, legal cases. So really they're, they're an investment business. They take, they take investment risk on their balance sheet and they also run a, run a couple of funds. And the other, the underlying asset is effectively legal risk. And it's kind of like yeah. a factory receivables, right? Like it's, it's not an insurance product. It is a, like this thing already exists and we're kind of, uh, assuming the risk of it for you. Well, this is where it gets interesting because a lot of the time, a lot of the time the, 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 the corporate knows they have a, an asset. Now Burford's moving in to actually helping them, you know, release value from their balance sheet, you know, because they have all these potential, cases and actually they're just sitting on the balance sheet so it, yeah the industry is, again this is an asset class that's evolving but really the, the bare bones of it is just yeah it's just kind of so so a company finance. can like in, initiate a lawsuit 
And then because there's like some expected value, should they win that lawsuit, they can go get cash at some discount for that expected value from, from Burford. Is that exactly, exactly. And, and, and they do that because they don't want the binary risk. The right? feel, so they, they, would, yeah. also, they would offload part of the risk, right? Also feels a little, um, really tempting fate. You know, there's a little bit of a honeypot there that we might not want to, uh, like societal externalities are not zero there. Yeah. Well, well I mean, it, I think part of the, part of the, the, the value that they provide is, is, is basically accelerating or accelerating the value that's been released from the balance sheet right on, on both sides and so i mean if, if you look at the if, if you look at the kind of legal market right i think it's like 800 billion um you know dollars a year that's been released in claims and and settled settled value right um burford kind of manages like what four or five billion at the moment i mean it's actually less than that in terms of the actual dollars they have out 1.2 or billion i think they managed with four billion um but yeah in terms of the core business there's, there's a difference between law you know they call it the legal fee business and like the corporate balance sheet business right so they're effectively working they're funding the law fees for corporates and take part of the risk because if, you, if you're a corporate and you have a you know you have a claim against you you don't want to go and pay the fees you, it's not your business, so you go to Burford. Actually, you pay the law, you pay the legal fees. You take part of the risk. It's a win-win. If you if you lose, Burford takes the hit. But you as a bu- you as a business, you release capital. It's like it's kind of like in yeah, similar to what you said. It's like releasing capital from the from the corporate, so they can actually focus on their core business, and you know, and and actually, then you have a settled case, right? Interesting. And, Bur- and Burford could be on both sides. Yeah, they mainly do. Yeah, they mainly do claimant stuff now, but they're thinking about doing defendant work. Yeah, but so yeah. What are the thing? What are the like? What really matters in in the Burford case? Well, I mean, this is completely different, right? This is kind of like, I mean, it's, it's like, is this is this business a fraud? Because it's, it's priced like it's going bankrupt, right? I mean, for what? Uh, yeah. If you look at the recent investor day, the management effectively came out and said that it's priced at liquidation value. So, and that was because of the big short report previously. Um, and yeah, and, and Marty, Marty Waters, a big short came questioning the accounting and stuff like that. And I, I think, you know, this, this business gets back to actually, you know, what it does to most things. Do you believe in the management? Do you, do you believe in, in the people running the business? Do you believe they are, you know, they are aligned, they have high integrity. Do you believe in, in, in the economics? Which is kind of like every business, right? You, know, you never truly know, you know, what's going on from the outside looking in, and, and so it's on the spectrum. And, and this 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 situation, you know, Burford Management ha- arguably has a, has still stuff to prove to the, to the market, given where it's trading. And you won't know until well, they have a big case coming up in in May, right? The the big YPF case. You'll see then potentially if investors will pay attention, but. Do you did you have a stance on the like you know your personal feelings on do you trust management do you believe in the, the integrity the alignment the I, I think it's hard to I think it's hard to argue that the two guys running Burford don't have high integrity now there, there there is it depends there is arguments that they they really don't I mean if you go and look at the way that 
they monetize one of their big cases in YPF. If you look at the wages that they potentially paid themselves prior to listing in the US, where you don't have to, you know, in the UK, if you're listing the aim, you don't have to declare how much you earn. Um, but again, you can, it's all, it's all perspective interpretation, right? Of, of, of those things. Like if, if the guy's paid himself a couple million, you know, is that unreasonable for, for, for the returns they have? Is this your own personal opinion? Obviously you want everyone to be completely aligned, but yeah, I, I think given the, how it evolved from the muddy water stuff, given how the business you know, has been built and, and the way they communicate and, and arguably the reputation they have in the market is from, our, well, from my point of view, it's hard to argue that they haven't got integrity. We will find out. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, it'll be fun to see it, see it play out. Um, okay, so uh, uh, I'm going to ask you guys an impossible question and I want an answer from both of you, even though you're both going to hate it. Um, how many companies can you list that you have, that you believe are on the 100 highest quality public businesses in the world today? They're both just like flinching and holding their heads and like angry at me. The answer, a reasonable answer can be zero. Um, if you say a hundred, I'll think you're lying. Uh, but, but I think it's like, you know, so you're asking, you're asking me what, how many of the hundred best companies do I know? Or how, yeah. How many do you feel like you could like, what? Yeah. How many you feel? But, like you but my have? version of a hundred could be different to yours, right? Uh, absolutely. Like th- there's a very everybody's going to have a different answer, but um, but I think I, I you think know. I mean some of the best businesses we come obviously, and again it moves every day, right? It evolves every day, every year. Um, but you know we're talking like Berkshire, Constellation Software, you know, Transdime, Microsoft, Google. You know, the, these are the some of the best businesses. Arguably, you know, Amazon is probably one of the best businesses I've ever looked at. You know, arguably, um, and and these are some, these are some of the best businesses that we've that the world has ever seen. Right? Arguably, I mean, you know, Microsoft, Microsoft is probably has the it's probably one of the only businesses in the you know the Microsoft Office kind of franchise is probably the highest value piece of soft any business has ever existed right and obviously you know i i think that is probably the best business i've ever seen um and then the, the you know beyond that it's that there's many different emerging businesses that we look at that are, that are, are truly high quality and that's excluding all the private ones right which you you know which you sure yeah, yeah. Which we haven't discussed which is a really interesting aspect of this conversation there's, there's the public um realm that we can all participate in and and then there's the element of quality in in the in the private sphere um and in my experience i see i see a lot of really underrated really long-term thinking and extremely coherent behavior coherent at the level um at that later stage of of multi-party stakeholder that we were just talking about right it's it's businesses that are aligned and resonant with you know businesses like ikea taking your furniture back right the announcement mm-hmm. they made the other week right there's there's um Audi, ex- little there's, there's right? a bunch of businesses you know, these, like these that, big right? retailers that by the way have low margins right low, well, and there's loads of german low gross, businesses low that are like high, high quality um, right like there's right? loads of these family-run European businesses that just have a craft 
um, you know, Hermes, LVMH type businesses that just serve a very small niche that are exceedingly high quality. But like, but but then with, if you if you compare that to Amazon and like Google, like these are just completely different beasts, obviously, in terms of scalability and. Well, I like. I mean, the separation of quality is interesting. Like, you know, we can, we can talk about quality without talking about whether it's a good investment or not. And and you know, Munger would say there may be no difference. Like, filtering for quality is is a probably a more interesting question. I think um, for sure. Yeah. Well, it but, it takes you to interesting places, and and especially it takes you to interesting places when you when you really go, I think, as deep as you can on quality. I'm not sure there's that many businesses I could put on that list. I couldn't find anywhere near 100 businesses that are coherent on the level of shareholders, employees, customers, local community, and future generations, right, that are actually embedded in it in a categorical win-win dynamic with future generations. And there you get into, I think it's it's work in progress for us, right? It's it's These are the kind of things that, that we're looking to dialogue on with some of the world's leading investors, some of the world's leading operators. This is what's so much fun is to bring people to the table and, and actually really explore what it means to be resonant with, with your stakeholders. Because um, I think it, it's associated the higher quality, time is a friend of quality. And I think there are really interesting ways in which, and, and it's a whole other, as you were saying, right? The relationship like time is quality. almost like the, the proof of quality. Well, it is. And, and it's just quality is a relationship between quality and, and something that is sustainable, right? Something that, you know, if, if there's a win-lose dynamic, one, you know, one party isn't coming back um, unless it's coerced to do so. So, you know, that, that leads you down a rabbit hole of, of, of market power and, how sustainable that might be. And in one economic regime, that might be sustainable. But over a series of economic regimes, you know, we in the US, the history of the US is the evolution of US capitalism. You've gone from an era of extremely high industrial and political uh, concentration of industrial and political power to the dissolution of that under the New Deal, the explosion of, of an antitrust regime in full force until the, the 60s, 70s, AT&T, Standard Oil being broken up, and increasingly a reconsolidation of of industries what what really lasts is a part of the story and and that that takes you into really interesting places in the debate yeah and i think the the purest form of expression in this question is, is you know what can you build um and so i think as a final question i want to i want to hear where you want to see in practice in 40 years and how you know you, you guys will live this um sort of appreciation of of quality and alignment and interest um and in pursuit of truth i hope it's I hope it's alive <laughs> step one <laughs> survive yes <laughs> yeah and then it, it goes back to this this thing like this is why we, we we focus a lot on what is authentic to ourselves right because something that has to last that long uh, it has to be truly authentic to who we are what we believe in how we want to live our lives um, and, and like, you know, we're not necessarily, we ain't doing this to, 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 to spin up something and sell it in three years, you know, and we haven't, we haven't capitalized the business to do that. We haven't you know, wrongly or rightly, it's just, the, the, you know, the decision that we've made and, and, and we're not in that for, we're not in this for that, for, for that reason. And so, you know, we, we focus a lot on what, how do we want to live our life? What do we think the world needs? What do we think our customer needs? And 
and what is truly a reflection of who we are. And and it would be that, you know, and yeah. who knows? Well, you know, it might be selling pet food online. Who knows, man? You never know. <laughs> Maybe in practice might be like the next Chewy. <laughs> Will, Will Oliver is going to be, you know, uh, I don't know, somewhere he'd with, be a, like with the a, mascot. Yeah. He'd, be, he'd be like preaching. <laughs> Win wins. Yeah, I've got, I've got a, there's a, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a mascot dog, under the desk right, of, a, of, a, of a hamster. Um, no, but Siri, I mean, I, I think it's um, like there, there's certain, because I think, Will, the, the joke speaks to something that I think is is actually pretty important to us, which is just like, start with like don't really know right and start with like we actually don't really know we're we're we're, we have a we have a set of principles which i can articulate and will can articulate and and i I would be glad to to do so now and then there's a function of iterating on on those principles um and iterating in a way that's hopefully reasonably authentic otherwise we'll get bored and and i'm not sure anyone will be having much fun um and so you know in terms of the principles it's it's really around this this journey of investigating quality this journey this you know and it's also another cliche thing it's really hard to I, i struggle myself to say but this this question of the pursuit of truth um is uh, how do you actually build a system to pursue truth so that has components? And and one thing that's reasonably likely is that the experience involves a community, a community of operators, a community of investors. You look at the stakeholders in this system, right? You have those operating, those providing the capital to those who are operating. You have educational institutions that are training people to move into both sides of that equation. Um, and, and, and it, re- if, if we get this right, I think this will be a, a, a trusted space to bring people together, um, to learn in, you know, in ways that are better, faster, cheaper. Um, that, that's, that's a big, th- it's, it's enhancing that flow, right? So that, and, and I, and I think then you can layer on sort of conceptually, well, what sort of business, what sort of models maybe, you know, may, are we attracted to, um, you know, can we can we make sure that we're giving a ton more value than we charge for? And there's that whole tactical dimension. But really, you know, maybe what's most you know interesting is is this this quest for community, this quest for better conversations, better dialogue, uh, and creating a trusted space where people can actually exchange ideas. Because I don't think it'd be such a bad thing if everyone you know for twenty thirty bucks a month could learn about how the best businesses in the world operate. No, that feels like an incredible education, even if you're not placing bets on those companies. But if we can even come close to answering that, uh, certainly it will be fun and lucrative and educational. And of course the real, you know, the real returns are the friends we made along the way, which, um, is is fun to bring people along like one-to-one and one-to-many. And, um, you know, I've been very grateful to get to know you and, and both wills in this process and blahs and this whole community of people who are kind of attracted to questions like this and hang out in the places like lattice work and everything else that that we do what um amen to that yeah yeah well i want to hear um and and maybe the last thing we're we're well over here as i knew we would be because every time we've ever talked we've exceeded the length of time that we said that we would talk um because because that's how we roll uh what are those those principles that you mentioned that are that are guiding in practice um, 
I think, you know, this is something I appreciate about you is how thoughtful you are about, about, you know, the, the long-term orientation, the win-win orientation, the consideration of all stakeholders and community, um, you know, the pursuit of truth, not just in name, but in, in structure, uh, and, and understanding that you have to kind of create the environment that induces, to use your words, like, and allows for the, the true, uh, you know, uninhibited pursuit of truth. So, um, yeah, talk, talk me through some of these, the principles of in practice, um, and, and then let us know where, uh, where people can get involved in this community that, that pursues truth and, uh, what kind of help we can provide. Mm. I, um, I would articulate it as follows. There's, um, there's this North star of quality that, that as we explored earlier, is like pretty hard to get your hands on, but there's something about like being committed to like, what are the most beautiful questions we could ask around quality? Uh, and what does that mean for, for each of the stakeholders we're involved in? Right. And, and, and that gets you pretty quickly to win, win. Right. And, and so there's there's quality win-win. There's there's um a real effort to focus on inputs over outputs. And that that is that is so hard. Um but but when you when you start thinking about quality seriously, then then it becomes a lot easier. Um and I think as we've gone on this journey, it's just our ability to to focus on inputs over outputs and be careful about what we measure. Um, it's, we've grown a lot in that sense. And a lot of that's due to actually cultivating a shareholder base that, that can work with that, right. That's aligned. Um, and, and I would say, you know, I, I don't know if I would complicate it much more than that. I think if we get those things right around, you know, quality and win-win dynamics, um, the, you know, the in service of, you know, relationship between quality and truth, those are joined at the hip. Um, um, and and then you know some degree of service, right? Um, is is uh, I think I mean we'll we'll this came up a number of times, right? We were we're eating our own cooking, um, and and we are excited to always find ourselves at the heart of of the operation in terms of consumers of what we're what we're trying to build. Um, but my God, there are, you know, there, there, there's so many things we have no, no clue about. And, and that's where the community aspect is deeply exciting. Cause I think there's, you know, there's something about, I mean, D Hawk talks about community. He, he says, you know, he has this line around communities, not, not, it's not what a community can do for you. It's what you can do for a community. That's the basis of community communities that work are fueled by people that are more interested in, in giving than taking. Um, and so, so, and this is where, you know, I guess we've circled back to Munger and, and, you know, you can get all metaphysical about quality, but actually the insights that, that he and, 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 and the guys at Berkshire had are, are just pretty insane on that level. And that's, you know, what's he done? Well, he's gone bottom up through biology and looked at systems and, and, and the whole Santa Fe angle systems theory and, and what, what, what lasts ultimately. Yeah, um, I mean, the, and, the, the, the idea of exploiting the underrecognized simplicities, you know, that, that what looks like genius is usually something simple taken very seriously over a long period of time. Right, right. And and I do because I don't think to, to that point, I don't think anything we're doing is really unique in, in it's it's combining probably a few half decent ideas. And, mm -hmm. and well, that's what I, yeah. I think that's that's what I love about learning about in practice and, and becoming friends with you at this stage, I think is, um, 
you know, I, I, we look back and idolize some of these companies like, you know, uh, Costco or uh, Newcore Steel or, um, Glen Air. And you, you know, you look at a 40 year track record of compounding at, you know, 20%. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. And it only becomes credible, incredible when you see it over, you know, 30 or 40 years. And I think what's interesting now at our stage of life is kind of like looking around at the people who you think are actually in the first 10% of that journey who have that perspective and who you can imagine now going decades, continuing to sort of practice those disciplined, simple, you know, long-term compounding things. And I think in practice is an amazing example of that. And, and you and Will, as a result, it, like your role in that, um, you know, I can totally imagine, you know, sitting at Lake Como with you in 40 years and looking back and being like, hey, huh, it worked. Unrecognized simplicities over a long period of time. And I, I hope that's uh, I hope that's how this feels the whole time. Yeah, I hope I think it's very generous of you. And, <laughs> and it, it certainly from the inside doesn't feel like we figured much out at all. But but. I mean, you know, I, I don't think we have anything better to do than, than give it a good shot. Yeah. Love it. And, right. and you're, you know, living, living the truths that you're learning. So, um, thank you guys both so much for, for taking all this time and then some extra time, um, and teaching us everything that you can about, you know, what you've learned and how you've learned it. And I think, um, you know, I certainly learned some things about conversation and, um, research and truth. And I'm excited to, you know, keep learning from in practice and keep learning from you and uh, be part of this community. That's uh, I've got to go, got to go finish my homework that you gave me on uh, assessing quality. And hopefully we can, we can keep chipping away at this. Well, I look forward question. to chatting about that. I we're, we're going to be running a series of dialogues on that um, with, with some wonderful human beings over the next um, few months on specifically on, on the topic of quality um, in a local business context, which is part of the in practice offering. Um, and then I think another project is getting, getting a bunch of people together to have, to have some conversations, to get deeper on this topics that I think we opened up today, because that, I mean, that, that's absolutely fascinating. And it is such a slippery topic and making that, you know, McGill tries talks about making a right, left, right transition. That's the basic model. If you, if you distill the core of his work, it's taking, you can almost look at it as a stage of maybe to end on this note. Um, um, and I really owe a lot to, to Tom Morgan, actually. For, for drawing attention to this. Um, he's written some beautiful, oh, so I had a number of beautiful articles on McGillchrist, talked to, talks about it so eloquently, and it's really helped me articulate the reading, which is the idea is to reach the simplicity on the other side of complexity, right? It's to have the open awareness, the creativity of a child, but after going through midlife and this sort of, you know, the crisis reality sort of, you know, punching you in the face, the complexity of the world, the brutality of the world, and to come out on the other end um, with an integrated worldview that harnesses that that sort of play, the playfulness and the genius, the creative genius and openness of a child to its environment, whilst also being able or having deconstructed the system and having a sense for the more practical dynamics. So it, it's that's the right hemisphere, the open awareness takes in a situation, the left hemisphere deconstructs it, right? Which is where your work comes in on leverage. And I know a lot of what you've published has, has been super helpful to us on that level, right? Which is essential 
to then moving to an integrated perspective, or it's a gateway into a return to the right where you take what the left surfaces, reintegrate it, um, and then hopefully you have a deeply embedded sense of participation in the world, a sense of, uh, and a a practical way to relate to it. Um, So you're combining, it's really another way to put it is combining a sort of the, you know, science and the sacred. Yeah. And and not either or, but both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not, neither, neither is sufficient by itself um, for, for, I think a a full life. So, um, well, tell tell us where we can go find you, find your work. follow up and participate in some of this. Uh, so certainly in practice, um, are you in, are you both on Twitter? I would say for our American listeners in practice is with an S. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. It is, uh, there's a, there's a story I'll share maybe some other time around <laughs> why that is. Um, um, we suffer its consequences, but, but, um, in practice.com with an S, uh, Twitter underscore or at underscore in practice. Um, with an S, um, and um, those those would be the two places. Awesome. All right. Thanks. All, thanks so much, Will and Will. Um, I'm excited to to talk to you guys shortly and to see kind of what comes, how the community uh, forges around this. Uh, and I, I hope we took another step with it today. It was great fun. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to check out some of the essays and interviews on In Practice. Uh, and also to check out some of D. Hawk, the CEO of Visa's books. They're deeply fascinating, nothing like what you are expecting. And I'll be reading more of them and refreshing in the coming weeks as well. If you liked this episode, you will also love my episodes with Andrew Finn, Phil Huber, and Andrew Wilkinson, also very thoughtful investors and life aligners. Um, and that's my parting thought for you today is how aligned are you? How many purposes are each of your efforts serving? How can you find ways to overlap some of your favorite activities to serve your long-term goals? I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.